for those of you who are regular attenders, uh, we, we are having a lot of different moving pieces this morning, but I think it is so important, so much so that I'm just going to speak even faster as we go through God's Word this morning. So, uh, so keep up if you can. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2, right where Tanner read Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And as you're flipping there, I want you just to think um, inside, try to put yourself inside my brain for half a second. When I read the Bible, I try to remember all the time that the characters in the Bible are living beings. And when the angels came to sing to the shepherds, I always have wondered, because I was a choir kid, we had our tuxedos, chamber choir, we'd sway and clap to terrible songs. And, and I always wondered, how long did the angels have to practice for that song? Because we, we have a little snippet of what they said, what they proclaimed and sang in that passage. But I, I like to think about what it was like for, for like Gabriel and Michael when they were getting ready to sing to the usher in the birth of the king, the most important moment in history. And in my head, it kind of goes um, something like this. Hey, hey, Michael, it's here. Can you believe it? The, the son, he's going to be born. Our king's going to go from the throne into a baby. Where do you think we're going to do it? Where do you think it's going to be? And then Michael, he's the strong, gruff, flaming sword, kill things guy. Dude, simmer down, Gabe. It's just another day. We know that God does things differently. Just wait. We're, we're, we've been practicing this song. And Gabriel's, we've been practicing for 10,000 years. I just want to see how I want to go. And I can picture them having this dialogue saying, is it going to be in Rome? Are we going to go to the political center and just slam this in and be like, Caesar, you're nothing. Dust. Look at this. King Jesus. Boom. And then all of a sudden, they'd be thinking about how God has always done things. God never goes to the big cities. God never goes to the central areas. God never does things like we expect. And that's what this story is about today. I'm not going to read what Tanner read. He had already read the part about the shepherds out in the field. And in case you're wondering, just a little bit of a spoiler alert, Christmas was not around December, most likely. And most likely, it was probably in the fall. Christmas, the, the day we celebrate, was a pagan holiday, the, the, the winter solstice that Christians took over and made about Jesus. And now pagans have taken it back over and made it about shopping. So we're just kind of going back and forth. We're going to toss the ball back and forth a couple times until we figure this thing out. There were shepherds keeping, out in the field keeping watch over their flock, and the angels broke in. And the angels said these words, which I think are hilarious. Verse 10, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. When angels break in, the first thing I think they have to say is fear not. Because every time someone sees an angelic being in the Bible, they are very, 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 very afraid. I told the, the team of people who were putting up the Christmas tree yesterday, I said, you know, why is it that angels are always these either nice, pleasant-looking uh, women or fat little babies? Why don't we have angels that would just scare the living daylights out of children when you light it up? I want an angel that's got like metal wings, big sword, look of anger, right on the top of my Christmas tree. My wife will never go for it. Our angel here is pregnant. I didn't know they did that to angels because I guess it's Mary and the angel. It's like a hybrid combo, but she's got a little uh, front bump, and it was so cute. I was like, I can't believe our angel's pregnant. The angels, <laughs> it's so weird. The angels in the Bible are not that. You don't look at them and think it's so cute. Every time someone sees an angel, they're falling down in fear. 
if an angel came into this room right now, if, if just the lowliest of angels, if angels are ranked that way, just walked through the doors, so many of us would think, I'd love to see an angel. I would love to just like take a little sneak peek. But most of us, when we looked at just an angel, would think that something cosmically destructive and powerful had walked through the door. Oftentimes when angels appear, people think it's God himself because that is the presence that they carry with them. And this was legions of angels showing up, not to Rome, not to Jerusalem, not to the political capitals, not to the religious headquarters, but to a bunch of unshowered backwoods shepherds. In this area, we call those people crackers, I think. For unto you... I know, I'm sorry, the crackers are all super sad. I don't know, that's a good thing. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a great multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem. And this is one of those Bible stories that that you read through, and we read it every year. We know the Christmas story. We sing the Christmas songs. But what would it be like for a legion, 10,000 angels, to just light up the sky? And you're hanging out. It's it's you, and it's it's Billy Bob, and it's the other shepherd, and you're just sitting there on your sheep. That's how I picture it. I'm not a farmer person, obviously, because sheep are gross. I know that. But if I were a shepherd, I'd be laying on my sheep, just hanging out at night, looking at the stars. And then one angel comes up and starts yelling something, and I'd be all scared. And then 10,000 angels give the choir performance that the world was created for. All of history was aimed toward this moment, and all of the future looks back at that moment and forward to the next time Jesus comes. And these angels proclaim this song, and then it's like in the sci-fi movies when there's a bright light that disappears. It just goes, and the shepherds are there, and the stars are back. And they probably look over and say, well, the guy said we should go to Bethlehem. And then he was joined with 10,000 other bright light things. Do you think we should go? And then it pans over the camera to that other guy who's always like the one who's slightly slower and more terrified. And he's just like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And they pick up their stuff and go. Because they want to see what was going on. They want to see this baby. Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Now today we don't have uh, quite as much time, but I I want us to think about a few things because we're going to tie together last week's sermon on the Magi, the wise men coming from the east, and this week is the shepherds being the ones that hear the choir performance of eternity These two groups of people are the most unlikely groups of people if you want to do something according to the world's wisdom. God's wisdom is always different from the world's wisdom. God's wisdom is always eternal. The world's wisdom is always dated. God's wisdom is is very profound and deep, and the world's wisdom tends to be more shallow. If you want to do something, there's a formula in this world, and we all know it, whether we think about it or not, but it revolves either around power or money or sex. Uh, And that's what the world's wisdom said. This is how you're going to kick things off the ground. This is how you're going to get things moving. But God had a totally different plan. And and I've I've spent some time not as a pastor when I was doing church plants, when I was doing other things. I worked in retail. Um, One of the worst experiences of my life, I moved back from Hawaii to Southern California, 
I needed a job. I didn't want to be in ministry anymore. And, and I got a job at Hollister. For those of you who don't know, Hollister is like the preteen version of Abercrombie and Fitch. I know you could tell. It's just written all over me. I got to Hollister. A, I'm six foot six and like 225 pounds. So none of their jeans fit me. And they want you to dress like them, like these weird woven belts. I got to spray perfume on me till I smell like a dead skunk. And, and I was um, one of the managers there, and I'd work my way up in the store. And one of the things that is so well done by these big companies is that they, they know exactly how to market to you and to me and to the teenagers. Uh, Facebook is brilliant at this. There's, there's so much that goes on in marketing. And when I think about Jesus' birth, I think about, okay, if I were Jesus' PR agent, if I were in charge of his marketing plan, what would I do? If I didn't know the Bible, and if I didn't know that God's wisdom was so different, I mean, we don't really have to look very far to see what do you do if you want a baby to be famous, right? First, you give it the last name Kardashian. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's mean. But seriously, look at what the famous, because we have famous babies now. I mean, can you imagine the world we live in? We have famous babies and magazine companies will pay famous couples $120,000 to publish the first photograph of their famous baby. So they, they hold out the deal, they get the magazine, they do the photo shoot, the photo shoot gets photoshopped, because in case you don't know me very well, I think most babies are very unattractive. It's just a thing. I know every mom is like cringing inside. If I come to the hospital when you give birth and I go, oh, wow, that's what I call a wow baby, because I don't say they're cute, I just say, wow, because they're precious. Um, and I know my wife hates this, but with the birth of Jesus, that's what I would have done. I would have looked around and said, okay, if I want to get maximum exposure for Jesus, the king, I'm going to have this magazine outlet cover it. We're going to have this story in the New York Times. We're going to have him born in this city. We're going to have him born like, at some crazy day, like uh, on the first of the year at 12 o'clock midnight, the first baby born. He's going to get some present. It's going to be amazing. But God says, no, that's not my wisdom. I'm going to bring a bunch of foreigners to announce it to the king. I'm going to send my angels not to the steps of Rome, but to a field with just a few guys who are rough around the edges. I'm not going to find the clean and the tidy people. I'm not going to tell the religious people. I'm going to tell those people who are rough around the edges. I like this, that God does that. We, uh, we talk often here at the chapel about how we're a ragtag group of sinners saved by Jesus. How we're here for the forgiveness of sins. And, and many of you have been hearing pieces of my story that I did not grow up in the church. I was a very rough cut person. But, but I was thinking about it. You know, when you, when you need to grip something, like, a, like a, a piece of wood or when I change my oil in my car, sometimes I buy the oil filters. And for those of you women who don't know what I'm talking about, just clue with me. They're smooth on the edge. And after you drive your car for 3,000 miles, that oil filter is a beast to get off. Your hand slides all over. You can't get it off. And then I discovered somebody was brilliant, and they made oil filters with this, like, sandpaper grip of death. And you can grab that thing and crank it until your skin falls off. But you can grab it and get a good grip on it. And I think that's what I love and what God loves about the Chapel family so much is that we are a bunch of grippable people because we're broken we got sandpaper grit all over us. There's not many polished among us. And I love that because I think when God reaches down, and you see it throughout the Bible over and over again, it's the rough cut people that he's constantly pulling up with him. It's the people who everyone else has said, you're an outcast, you're an outsider that God chases after and lifts up and exalts. 
And I think for too long we've made Christianity about how good we can look rather than about how desperate for Jesus we can be. And that's led us to some very problematic areas of Christian life. So here we have the shepherds. These were people that wouldn't have been able to stay as clean as those who lived in the city. These are people who wouldn't have been able to go to the rituals and the, the holidays that would have their sins atoned for with the animals because they had to constantly be working, constantly be on guard. And God says, I know that everyone looks down on you. I know that you feel like you don't get to plug in like everyone else does, but I want you to know that I'm going to give you something more spectacular than anything that's ever been seen. And I think about... Uh, I think about Jesus being born in a manger, probably not a, even as nice of a place as that. And the, the wise men probably not coming when Jesus was a baby, but coming later, and the shepherds being those first ones to, to usher in the birth of the king. And if you're a, a newborn mom, there's this thing that you have in you. Um, we could just call it the crazy. And it's this thing where you have a baby who's healthy, and they have the cutest little hands, right? Every mother knows this. And what do babies do with their cute little hands? They just suck on them all the time, right? So when you come to a place like a church, and you have this adorable baby, this big wow baby, you bring your baby in, and this has never happened here to my kids, but maybe to some other kids. And this baby's already telling me, this has happened to me, Pastor Ryan. And they have their hands in the air, and we've been shaking hands for hours, and you grab this baby's hands, and you just say, oh, hey, cute little baby, let me give you influenza. Let me give you dysentery. Let me make your mother love me. And you like rub, and you spit shake the baby goodbye. And, uh, and you wouldn't believe how many times I've seen this happen, right? And then the new mother, especially if it's one of the mothers that's anything like me or my wife, like the germaphobes, you know, you, you take your kid to the back, we have the sanitizer, you just uncap it and just baptize your kid. Because you know how miserable it is when kids get sick. And this is just in suburbs Fishhawk, where we all have dial soap. Most of us shower and wear deodorant. Like, this is a clean area. Imagine the first people to visit your baby are guys who probably haven't showered in over a month. Imagine if the first people to visit your child have gnarled hands that have been holding bug-ridden sheep and lambs Imagine if the first people to hold your child existed in a time before dental care, existed in a time before razors were popular and could clean shave everyone. There were no man buns. It was just long, scraggly hair with big, nasty beards and weird bugs all over. And God says, who do I want to visit my son when he goes from the throne of heaven, born into a little infant? Who are my first visitors? those guys. And they're the ones that show up. And I don't know what happened. I don't know if they picked up Jesus and kissed him. I don't know if they held him up like Simba and the Lion King and light shone down again. I don't know what happened. But I do know that God has a habit of picking people that the world does not think are pickable. I do know that every week someone tells me, I'd invite my friend so-and-so to, to come to church or I would tell them about Jesus but Ryan you just don't understand this person is messed up like they do not want to come to church they think that God's going to strike them down with lightning they think that people are going to look at them and judge them and that's when I always say look do you feel judged 
Is, is this a place is in this body where we're coming in, we're saying, I'm better than so-and-so? There's a reason why I share my sins with you. Part of it is because it just gives me a little bit of freedom. So when I tell you I write sermons at a bar and you see me at a bar, you're not going to be floored by it. And like, oh, my pastor's at a bar. Part of it is because I'm a sinner saved by the grace of Jesus. Christianity is not a religion about getting better. It's a religion about the forgiveness of sins because we're stuck in the mud. Christianity is not a religion about God waiting till outsiders can become insiders, till dirty people can clean themselves up and become clean people morally. That's not what this game is about. This game is about God saying, I love you, my messed up, broken, dirty children who are stuck in sin. I love you so much, I'm sending my son Jesus to live the perfect life that you could never live, to die the death you deserve to die, and to raise again, grabbing you by the ankles and sucking you up to heaven. That's what this is about. Christianity is not a game about politics. It's not left versus right. It's not Republicans or Democrats. It's not, it's not us versus them. It's not insiders and outsiders. It's God's one-way, relentless love saying, I want the shepherds. I want the prostitutes. I want the irreligious. I want the other religion. I'm going to bring them to me and tell them that I love them with a one-way love that cannot be shaken. That's what Christianity is about. And that's what God is driving home in the birth of Jesus, showing us time and time again, I'm not here for the clean, shiny religious people. I'm here for the people who recognize their need for me and listen and follow. I, I love that God chase, chases after broken people like me. I love that now I, I'm beginning to hear these conversations when people say something like, uh, before we had some of the choir members saying, God's not going to be mad at you if you miss a note. And I say, how do you know? And then the other person says, because he loves us when we're still sinners. And I just walk away thinking, someone listened to one of my sermons. It's the best. And here's why I think we need to remind ourselves of this good news every day. Because we forget it every day. Because we are a people who like the word deserve. Who like the word earn. And we want to earn our right standing with God. We want to feel like we deserve something. And in a conversation I had recently, I told somebody that grace is one of the most painful things to receive from God. And they were like, that doesn't make sense. Grace is the good stuff. It's the love. It's the joy. It's the, the free gift. I said, yeah, but in God's economy, grace doesn't work in, in simply raising up our arms and saying, I'm ready. Grace comes to us when we finally can raise up our arms and say, I've got nothing to give. When we could be like a shepherd laying in a field, not expecting anything great, being simple people, trying to be faithful to God, but saying, God, you're all that I need. I can't earn anything without you. Would you please break into my life? The reason grace is painful is because it removes from our vocabulary the language, I did it, in regards to spiritual life. It removes from our vocabulary the language, I deserve this, in regards to our spiritual life. I know many uh, of us have been taught that we want to one day hear when we die, well done, good and faithful servant. And I've been at a lot of funerals. I've done a number of funerals, uh, more than I'd like to have done. And, and I used to say that, and then I started thinking, wait a second, is that what that passage is actually about? That, that I would be the servant that God would say, well done? Is that the context of that passage? And I'm not sure that it is. Because there's one servant who did it right. There's only one, and that was Jesus. 
And when I step into God's presence, I, I'm going to be that John, 1 John chapter 2 guy that says, do not sin, but if you go on sinning, don't worry, we have an advocate before the Father. When I step before God the Father, I don't want to stand there and say, did I do it? I want to stand there and say, he did it for me. And point right to big brother. Jesus did it for me. It wasn't me. I was just this bum in a field running away from you, and he came and got me. You got me, and you love me. Don't look at my stuff. Look at his stuff. And that's the beauty of Christianity and the Christmas story, that if you feel like you can't fit into this Christmas story, if you feel like it's too shiny, it's too nice, it's too neat, I want you to know that God pursues the outsiders to make them his insiders. I want you to know that God's love is not seeing through the same lens that our human eyes are seeing through. I've shared this with you before, um, and I just think it's so much fun. I've got a few friends who still use bad language around me, um, and most people don't. It's just the reality. When you're a pastor, you just have to get used to the fact that if you want to hear a bad word, you've got to go to a rated R movie or something, because everyone that says it around you apologizes instantly, and that sort of ruins the zinger. Um, like if it's like a joke or whatever, and they say some word, even if it's not a bad word, if they're like, oh, crap, sorry, pastor. Can I say crap? I have the mic. I'm the pastor or whatever. So, so they do that, and they, they say sorry. And I have a few friends, and, uh, and these guys are the heathens of heathens. I love them. And they'll just, they'll just curse in front of me, not care at all. But one of them recently did this. They were saying to me some joke. They dropped the curse word, and they looked at me, and they thought, maybe I should stop saying that. And they didn't say it out loud, but I could see it in their eyes. Like, like, it's getting tiring cussing in front of you and pretending it doesn't bother me. And then we get to the next part of the Christmas story, which is this. It's not about staying in the muck. God finds us there. He loves us so much that he will chase you to the deepest, darkest pit, and he will find you there. He literally walked through hell for you. But he loves you so much that he's going to take you from the pit and bring you to the king. And the shepherds went right to baby Jesus, and they told everybody about him all the way there. The dirty, grimy people that we are, we're not called to be perfect. We're not called to be better than other people. Don't let people outside the church put that pressure on you. Don't let anyone ever say, well, you are a Christian, so you shouldn't do A, B, C, D, and E. Because God chooses the broken, messed up, jacked up, sinful people like you and me. And he gives us great joy and says, now go spread that joy. And that's what we're here for this Christmas season. I wish I could go back in time or find this guy on Facebook who wrote the one negative review about the chapel. On Facebook, we have one negative review. And it's my favorite of all the reviews. Because it's from four years ago and a guy came here and played football, which is why I was really worried when we had the old man's football league a couple weeks ago. But this guy came, played football, and the review on Facebook was something like, I, was, I played football at this chapel, at this church. Man, the people from the church were the worst people ever, is basically his paraphrase, like the sinner of sinners. And I think I might try to go on there today and find it and just say, thank you, you're so right. And I love them. Because that's what Jesus says when he looks at your life. We're not here to not be hypocrites. We're here to be loved by Jesus and forgiven of our sins. We're not here to pretend our life is all together when on the inside it's falling apart and all we are dying to do is reach out for someone to help us and pray for us and walk alongside us. We're not here to pretend. We're here to lift our hand and say, I need it. I need a friend right now. 
I need, to, I need a friend to get through today because my spouse is treating me this way. My, my bills are going this way. My job is going south. I just need something. And instead, I think we have this pressure, not only in our culture, but in our church culture, to say, everything's okay. Everything's good. I would love it one day to be the pastor of a church where when we come in in the morning to our friends, not to the total strangers, but to our friends, where we could say, hey, how are you doing? And you could honestly say, it's been one of the worst weeks. Could you pray for me? And just to see people, like I already am starting to see, just praying for each other, praying through tears, praying through illness, praying through loss of job, praying through wayward children, praying through the normal stuff of life, praying for sanity for mothers who are getting no sleep, praying for dads who don't know how to engage with their wives and their kids, and us not trying to be perfect. Because I'll tell you what, I need prayer for almost everything I just mentioned. I need people to walk alongside me. And I could, I know how to give off the image of being a strong person. I'm six and a half feet tall. People move out of my way except for at Disneyland and they run into me. Uh, so I know what it's like to, to stand tall and, and to make my presence known. I public speak. I'm not scared of this kind of stuff. But you know what? I think deep inside, the times I don't want to admit it are when I'm going to sleep at night, my phone has died and I can't have music or noise on. It's in those moments when I realize, God, I'm so much in need of you. And I'm more scared of more things than I'm willing to imagine. I'm scared I'm going to fail. I'm scared I'm going to mess up. I'm scared this is going to happen. I'm scared that's going to happen. And it's in those moments when I think I need you and you need some of your friends and we need to come alongside each other and put this whole business of perfect, shiny Christmas Christians behind us and say, man, we're a bunch of shepherds. We're a bunch of sheep herders who are easy to grip because we're so broken and rough around the edges. And let's see what God does with that Christmas story in your life. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your amazing love for me and for these people. God, I thank you that you not only reach down and love us here in this moment today, but that you, you're loving people around the entire globe, that there are people in Zimbabwe that you're loving and that you're leading to you right now. God, I pray for people in here who have felt far from you, who have felt like they could not enter into a church or be part of a church family because they are sinful people. God, you know my heart. Sinful people are the only people welcome here and those are the only type of people that I've met. So I pray that you would give them not guilt, not shame, but freedom, knowing that you came to die for them and that you came to the outsiders, not the insiders, that you came to those who were unexpected visitors rather than the expected religious people. Help us to be a church who loves with no shame. Help us to be a church who prays constantly. Help us to be a church where hugs and tears and sin are met with hugs and tears and forgiveness. I love you. I thanks for, thank you for all you do. In Jesus' name.